0: Bonnie Glaser, Director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power podcast, we're discussing Xi Jinping's mid-October visit to India, the changing China-India relationship and developments in the surrounding region. Since the informal Wuhan summit between Xi Jinping and Prime Minister Narendra Modi in April 2018, China-India relations have focused on bolstering economic ties and and they've downplayed strategic competition. But recent developments in the region have presented new challenges to the relationship. China's close ties with Pakistan, of course, friction, especially in light of recent conflicts over the Kashmir region, And China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. On October 11th and 12th, Xi Jinping and Modi met for another unofficial summit, this time in Chennai. After the meeting, Modi said the talks marked a new era of cooperation. Xi Jinping echoed that the bilateral relationship has entered a new phase of sound and stable development. To discuss the outcomes and the impact of this C-Modi meeting and the broader China-India relationship, I'm joined by Dr. Tanvi Madan. Tanvi is director of the India Project and a senior fellow in the Project on International Order and Strategy in the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. Her work explores Indian foreign policy, focusing on India's relations with China and with the United States. Tanvi, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Donnie. So um, to start with, what's your takeaway from the Xi Jinping Modi summit? What were the main outcomes and achievements? And and what does this tell us about the trajectory of India's relations with China?
1: I think what the visit told us is that the bilateral relationship is essentially, at least for India, remains one that can probably be described as competitive engagement, uh, with perhaps more competition uh, than engagement uh, over the last few years, uh, but the fact the two sides continue to try to meet each other. I think one of the main takeaways was that the summit actually withheld. There was some concern that because of some of the friction that you mentioned in the last few months, they would either postpone or find a way to even perhaps cancel the visit. But I think both sides were quite focused on making sure that this was held. The Indians have come to the conclusion that it is best to actually try to get Modi and Xi to develop an interpersonal relationship and then have them give direction to their bureaucracies to move things forward. And I think Delhi has kind of figured out that without that, they don't see much implementation or follow through from the Chinese side. So I think that was a big takeaway that it happened. I think in terms of the issues, What we saw particularly was a focus on economic ties and second on people-to-people ties. On the economic side, they formed something called a high-level economic and trade dialogue, which will be led on the Chinese side by Vice Premier and on the Indian side by the finance minister. And the idea is to get to a more balanced economic relationship. Uh, At the moment, China is one of India's largest trading partners. But the uh, trade, uh, like for the U.S., it's quite imbalanced, India's trade deficit. Uh, which China is quite large. It's about $54 billion of the $95 billion that they traded uh, last year. And so I, the, the part of the idea for India was to emphasize that this needs to be a balanced relationship, and without that, it wasn't sustainable. The Chinese want into the Indian market, and there, too, India has been essentially saying it needs to be mutual. Uh, that is, Indian companies need access to the Chinese uh, market as well. And so I think they want their two sides to kind of move on those questions as also the question of whether or not India will sign on finally to RCEP, what the Chinese are keen on, and that was mentioned uh, in, the, in the at least the statement that the Indians released, that they were hoping to reach some sort of conclusion to that, but there it would have to be, again, they used the term balanced. And so I think the economics was a huge focus. The other was people-to-people ties. Uh, and that goes to the point that these are two countries, though they're neighbors, uh, there isn't actually that much engagement compared to what they have with countries uh, much further apart. And also that eventually, if they do want to solve some of these big issues that are in differences, uh, particularly something like the boundary issue, they will need uh, to build a certain amount of trust and connectivity between the two publics and change public opinion somewhat. The one last thing I'd say about the announcements that they made is that the Indian defense minister would be going at some point. They didn't say when uh, to China. This is an attempt Uh, to try to get the militaries uh, to talk to each other a little bit more, uh, more as a confidence-building measure and to ensure that there aren't incidents at the border in the future.
0: So what are the main factors today and going forward that are shaping the China-India relationship? And what are the main goals that each side has for this relationship?
1: I think for both sides, they've talked multiple times about needing to ensure there's a stable relationship. And this time, uh, they've kind of particularly said that this world, they didn't use the word uncertainties, but essentially said this is a world in flux. Uh, there are lots of uncertain factors. And China and India should have a stable relationship so that both can actually focus both on their domestic goals as well as their other global and regional priorities. I think to ensure that Uh, Both sides have tried to kind of maintain, to some extent, keep the border since the Doklam crisis in 2017, uh, to try to kind of get that back to a situation where the two sides sort out there. they have these border management mechanisms so that you don't have those flare-ups and incidents at the border. Um, Second, I think both sides have tried to actually uh, increase the economic ties. Once upon a time, there was the theory, as there was here, Um, that better economic ties would kind of lead to better political ties. I think they've kind of given up on that because some of those economic ties, because they've, at least from the Indian perspective, been somewhat imbalanced, But they've actually added to the problem. So I think what they're trying to do is ensure that economics kind of stays a source of cooperation, deepens in many ways. Uh, The Chinese want, especially Chinese companies, are quite keen to get into the Indian tech market in particular, but also in the market more broadly. And the Indian companies want greater access, especially the pharma and IT companies, to the Chinese uh, market. So you do see both sides. kind of The economic factor has started to play a role as well. I think there is kind of a global dimension to this relationship, which is that both sides have seen cooperation with the other in certain multilateral forms uh, as tactically useful at various times. The WTO in particular is one uh, that comes to mind, even though they themselves have a few disputes Uh, In play, that is one place, or for example, on climate change, that they have actually cooperated. So I think, in terms of kind of the strategic side, keeping the border peaceful and stable, the economic side and kind of the global side, these are the factors shaping kind of the broad factors shaping their bilateral relationship. The one other element I'd add that has shaped how these two Asian giants have dealt with each other is their kind of relationship with third countries both watch very carefully how, for example, India watches how China deals with not just the U.S., but its neighbor, Pakistan, as well as countries like Japan and how it behaves in the region. And China watches very carefully how India deals with its neighbors, such as Japan, uh, but also uh, the U.S. uh, and some other countries. So I think that has started shaping the relationship in a much more significant way than it used to in the past.
0: A few months before this summit, New Delhi stripped Indian-administered Kashmir of its uh, special status— and that obviously caused increased tensions between India and Pakistan, and I think had some spillover for India's relationship with China. So China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, talked about this issue with Indian External Affairs uh, Minister Shankar when uh, Shankar visited Beijing in August. So can you talk a little bit about how this issue has affected the relationship And why is it that they didn't even talk about, apparently, Kashmir during the C. Modi meeting? And and what should we conclude from the fact that it wasn't even on the agenda?
1: One of the things that's often forgotten is that China is actually a party to the Kashmir dispute. The boundary is disputed not just between India and Pakistan, but there's a part of Kashmir, uh, which is now actually called Ladakh, which is actually claimed by India but held by China, what China calls Aksai Chin. And so in some ways... China, when it expressed its sentiment, it wasn't doing it just as a Pakistani ally, but was concerned about its own interests. And what Foreign Minister Jay Shankar conveyed or tried to convey to uh, Wang Yi is that those interests weren't, that nothing had changed about the claims on either side, and that this was an internal matter for India and more administrative in nature than international. Uh, that was also why, for instance... The Indians insisted that this was not clarified at a subsequent press briefing after the, after the summit. That this was not talked about. That Kashmir itself was not talked about. They asserted that this was an internal matter, and so it was not going to be discussed in that setting. However, they did acknowledge that uh, what they did talk about is uh, President or Chairman Xi Jinping's visit to visit, or, or rather, Imran Khan's visit. To Beijing to meet with Xi uh, just before um, this summit. Um, they didn't talk about what he said, but the fact that the China-Pakistan or that China would have brought up this subject suggests that it was brought up in an at least in an indirect way, if not uh, a direct one. Having said that, where all these developments did. Really, kind of uh, factor into the summit is in the run-up to it, where I think it changed the tone and the mood around this summit, and it added to some of the stress before the Wuhan summit. Both sides did a lot to kind of try to make sure the optics and the tone were very positive. This time, the tone and the mood was quite gloomy in some ways. And it was because the Indians at least saw the Chinese publicly criticizing them for this Kashmir move uh, at the UN in New York, at the UN Human Rights Commission in Geneva. Uh, But also Wang Yi particularly mentioning it in his General Assembly speech. This got under uh, the Indian skin a bit. And so you did see them kind of release some statements of their own, saying this is really not China's business. Uh, So it did color the atmosphere a little bit.
0: Regarding Pakistan, which, of course, is is always uh, in the forefront of Indian's threat perceptions, how is Pakistan today factoring into the India-China relationship?
1: I think one of the things that uh, Pakistan really... Does in this relationship, it has been a constant source of not just irritation, but on the Indian side, it sees its Pakistan and China challenged as linked. And it's seen it as that, as linked that way since uh, the early 60s. And when it thinks about what concerns it has about China, why it sees China as a threat, there's the boundary dispute. I'd say a second is the China-Pakistan relationship. They feel that the Chinese have supported the development of Pakistan's nuclear and missile programs. But now through China-Pakistan economic corridor is going to be an additional problem, not just because it deepens the China-Pakistan relationship, but now there will be more of a Chinese presence in kind of India's West as well. Um, There's also this issue of the China-Pakistan economic corridor, including a few projects that are in territory in the parts of Kashmir that India still claims, but Pakistan uh, holds. And so you do see kind of this aspect of China-Pakistan relations continuing to be this sore subject. And for the Chinese, it actually sometimes prevents them from trying to improve relations with India, even when they want to. Um, Xi Jinping wouldn't have been happy about the fact that at least twice this year, he's had to go to bat very publicly for Pakistan, uh, or at least his government has, uh, at times when He's wanted to keep the India relationship stable. So just after the incidents in February uh, with the terrorist attack in India, which India said came from Pakistan, and then the subsequent Indian uh, retaliation across the border, uh, the Chinese very publicly had to take Pakistan's uh, side, and again, join this Kashmir issue. um, And sometimes it puts them in a little bit of an awkward situation, and even uh, shapes Indian public opinion uh, in a particularly anti-Chinese way, because, for example... They will point out that China blocks the uh, designation of some Pakistan-based terrorists uh, at the UN, and it does so for Pakistan. And so it says, look, it's not just China says it wants to uh, fight terrorism, but it's actually giving cover uh, to Pakistani-based terrorists. So I think Pakistan is a particularly tough aspect of the China-India relationship, and it actually makes it very hard uh, for the two countries to settle some of their fundamental differences.
0: China and India have been doing this dance about the Belt and Road Initiative. You know, India has not, of course, uh, joined, but it is engaging with China in the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. There's Chinese investment coming in. India has now joined the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. So there is cooperation on a range of these issues related to BRI matters, but the two seem to be trying to come up with a way to work together. And at this recent summit, Xi Jinping apparently suggested that India join the Maritime Silk Road, which is, of course, one part of the Belt and Road. And Modi countered with a suggestion that China participate in India's Indo-Pacific vision through enhancing maritime connectivity between Chennai and uh, Chinese ports. So is it possible now the— cooperation on BRI, whether they call it that or not, is ultimately going to become a positive in the Sino-Indian relationship?
1: I think what you'll see is what they have been doing for a while, which is kind of economic projects here or there. Um, they used to, for example, some of their companies used to do participate uh, jointly in energy projects in Africa a number of years ago. So it's not unprecedented, but I don't think you will see At any point in the near future, an Indian endorsement or official participation in the Belt and Road Initiative, India has three essential problems with it. Uh, One, as I'd mentioned, that there are these BRI projects that are in areas that India uh, claims and Pakistan controls. And so India would be essentially acknowledging that it doesn't have sovereignty over those areas and be giving up its claims if it accepted BRI. Um, Second, India has had problems with the terms of some of the uh, Belt and Road Projects. Uh, particularly in uh, its neighborhood, and it feels like it is adding uh, to the debt burdens in these countries, that the projects aren't sustainable, both financially and environmentally, and um, the point that uh, they're not keeping in mind Indian sensitivities. And I think the third problem kind of India's had with Belt and Road projects is. India doesn't think a lot of these projects, or, or not, at least some crucial ones, are commercially viable, and so the suspicion remains that if they're not commercially viable, then they must be motivated by strategic reasons. And so, the port of Hambantota, for example, or the Chinese development of Colombo in Sri Lanka, uh, is seen in those uh, realms. So, India is staying away from Belt and Road Initiative, which, as which is why, as you mentioned. It kind of did not respond to President Xi's kind of offer. And I suspect it will continue to do that uh, while doing these kind of bilateral projects, either in each other in each other's countries, increasing economic ties. Uh, but secondly, also exploring the ideas of working together in a third country. The new high-level trade and economic dialogue, it's not supposed to be just talking about bilateral economic ties. Uh, but one aspect of it is supposed to be discussions about cooperation in the third country. we we'll see where that goes, because this has been proposed before, uh, and they were supposed to try to work together in Afghanistan, but even though the Indians wanted to do some sort of economic project, all they ended up with was a joint training program for diplomats. And so, um, you know, the jury is out on whether India will do more on that front, uh, but I think you will see this more kind of outside the ambit of Belt and Road. Uh, just one thing, India makes a distinction between AIIB and the Belt and Road Initiative, and they very explicitly said that they joined the AIIB because it was a regional, not a national project it was developed consultatively and not unidirectionally uh, and it was also it, is, it also has a set of high level standards uh, that meet global uh, standards that in a way that belt and road does not and so they've made that distinction and said if belt and road ever does follow the rules in the same way they might reconsider their participation
0: what about india's act east policy does that come into competition with BRI? And what is the overall impact of India's desire to be a more active player in East Asia? Is that something that China welcomes? Will it have a positive or a negative impact on the relationship if it is actually implemented more actively in the future?
1: So in some ways, when India talks about its own pre-open and inclusive vision of the Indo-Pacific, it will always point out that's not its strategy, that's its vision of the end goal of what the region should look like, and that what its strategy is, is this kind of Act East policy. And it has many dimensions, not connectivity is just one aspect of it, uh, but what it is is kind of enhancing India's connections strategically, uh, economically, culturally with the rest of Asia to its east. Um, and ACT East has has some of those connectivity elements. These are projects that have been ongoing for a number of years. They definitely precede BRI, but they also precede uh, some of the Chinese projects that came before. The Belt and Road Initiative. And these have essentially involved connecting up India's east and northeast uh, through Bangladesh uh, to countries uh, like Myanmar, Thailand by kind of uh, road or rail, and then even thinking about connecting through the Bay of Bengal some of its, uh, India with its maritime neighbors. So these projects exist, um, and not just in the uh, through the Act East, also through some of India's other initiatives with some of its Indian Ocean partners. Uh, the, the issue has been with implementation, um, which is that India, these countries often uh, complain that they don't see kind of the speed. Of implementation that they do with Chinese projects. They sometimes have questions about the costs, at least the immediate costs, not the life cycle ones. Uh, and that also uh, that India doesn't just can't offer the kind of scale of investments or loans more likely that, that China does. Having said that, Um, I think India's done recently a better job of trying to track implementation. I think that way the Chinese projects have really made them up their game in terms of thinking about actually delivering on these projects with some amount of speed. Uh, They've had to expand the level of kind of credit uh, and loans that they are giving to uh, these neighboring countries. And the other thing that India has become willing to do, which I think China would worry about a little bit more than these Indian connectivity projects in general, is that India, after a long time, has been willing to work with other countries in its own neighborhood. And that India has been sensitive about doing that in the past. But for example, it's working with the U.S. Uh, or trying to work with the U.S. on some connectivity projects, infrastructure projects in Nepal. It's working with the Japanese uh, in Sri Lanka. And so there is kind of this coordination with other major other major powers that might be of a little more concern to the Chinese than some of these other projects. But I do think in China does kind of watch quite closely India's relationships with Vietnam, for example, Um, And also with some of the other countries that we, I think you'll start to see some of this even more as India increases its presence, Uh, even though it still has capacity limitations. You do see some new projects on the anvil, like, for example, a potentially Japanese-funded project to redevelop the port of Sabang in Indonesia and then connect that up to, to India's Andamans. And so you're starting to see this kind of grow in terms of size. But at the end of the day, uh, one of the things that India will have to do is deliver on these projects, which it hasn't had a great track record of in the past.
0: I wanted to ask briefly about India's policy towards these uh, mass internment camps in Xinjiang where somewhere between one and maybe even three million uh, Uyghurs uh, have been uh, incarcerated. And and some countries have been vocal in defense of China's policies in Xinjiang. We saw 49 countries including Pakistan sign an open letter supporting China. And then there of course have been some other countries like countries in Europe and Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Japan and Canada even signed a, a joint letter uh, calling for China to revise its uh, its policies. How does India stand on the issue of the incarceration of these Uyghurs, and what is the reason for India taking the position that it does?
1: Uh, India has been quite consistent about not speaking about it's not. It won't, for example sign a letter in support or defense of what the Chinese are doing. Uh, but you're unless something significant changes in terms of Chinese criticism of internal Indian policies, you're unlikely to see uh, India coming out and opposing them. Um, India has kind of tended to stay silent for two reasons, uh, one of which is China specific, one of which is kind of more general. The more general reason is that India has tended to say that, look, what happens inside countries is really not our business, and we don't want to comment on it. And that's because India has is also sensitive that it could be at the receiving end of uh, such criticism, and it, so it largely wants others to stay out of its own business. And so it has said, look, we're not going to comment on others' internal policies. You don't comment on ours. Second is the fact that uh, China historically has had ways to actually cause trouble within India with some insurgent groups who, who it has helped finance or provide equipment to uh, in India's Northeast, for example. Um, and because of the long boundary, there are ways physically China can actually assist some of these groups within India. And so India is very careful about saying too much uh, about what happens inside China, lest China kind of use some of these levers that it has and has historically used uh, against India, so they've tended to be uh, fairly quiet about it. Depending on how their internal assessment of how this summit went with Modi and Xi, uh, you might see India if China continues to criticise India's policy on Kashmir, for example, as it did in New York and Geneva. I think you might see India not comment on Xinjiang but on Hong Kong, and there India will justify that as uh, being that it has a right to comment. Uh, because it has a number of Indian citizens uh, who live and work there. And so it has kind of an interest in their security and safety. So I think if you're going to see India comment on something, it's more likely to see, uh, you're more likely to see a comment on Hong Kong rather than Xinjiang.
0: Finally, I wanted to ask you about how U.S. relations with India and President Trump's policy towards uh, Delhi affects India's relations with, with China, How does this enter into uh, Modi's calculus when he meets with Xi Jinping? How is he thinking about um the relationship with the United States? And is India really willing, to join the U.S. effort to counter China's influence in the Indo-Pacific. We know that both have talked about free and open Indo-Pacific, but Prime Minister Modi has also emphasized inclusive, which we really have not heard from the United States. So is there a significant amount of overlap between U.S.-India approaches to China's role in the Indo-Pacific? Is this just a rhetorical difference, or is it more meaningful?
1: What you do see is, uh, as the Indian Foreign Minister recently said about um, India's cooperation with the quadrilateral, that is Australia, India, Japan, and the U.S.'s consultative group, which is that there's a strong similarity of approaches. And so I think that tells you it's not, it's not the same. Uh, it's not, there's, an, they don't entirely overlap the approaches, but there's there's enough of a shared interest in ensuring that kind of vision of the region, a rules-based regional and international order, as well as kind of the approach to it. And you have seen that even as India has, uh, when it says inclusive, uh, yes, it means China if it follows the rules. That's a big if. Uh, But it also, the reason it added the inclusive in there is because there was some concern that uh, ASEAN felt it had been left out. So that was more kind of ASEAN's concerns than China's. But you do see India, even as it is kind of engaging with China, trying to stabilize that relationship, um, since the Wuhan summit, or actually even these last two years, um, on the defense and security side in particular. Uh, which is often concerned about, uh, India has actually deepened its relationship with the U.S. considerably. And not just with the U.S., but also with Australia and Japan, uh, as well as with France. And so you see kind of India saying, look, we're willing to engage China, uh, but we still uh, have uncertainties about its uh, intentions. We don't like some of their actions. And the other thing that they don't like about kind of the Chinese behavior in the region is they feel that uh, China would like a unipolar Asia, even as it talks about a multipolar or a bipolar world. And that is not acceptable uh, to India as far as, uh, as far as its own interest is concerned. So I think what you have seen is what the U.S. relationship does for India, this closer relationship. On the one hand, India sees China as taking India more seriously because the U.S. takes India more seriously. And so it's the U.S. relationship for India's leverage with China. Uh, On the other hand, it can add complications. So, for example, historically, India was hesitant to do things like upgrading the quad uh, or, for example, making uh, the quad uh, a militarized or uh, having a maritime quad, changing uh, the Malabar exercise that U.S., India and Japan do and was just completed and was happening even as Xi Jinping uh, or just concluded just before Xi Jinping was in India. This Malabam adding Australia to it, those kind of things India was not doing because it was concerned about provoking China. So you do see kind of the U.S. relationship sometimes. There's a sense in Washington that India holds back because it does not want to upset China, and it has its own equation. And um, So I think the U.S. angle is pivotal here. But what the fact that the Trump administration has seen India as kind of a key part of this Indo-Pacific strategy, it's actually given India some leverage with China uh, to to say that, look, we're going to do all this with the U.S. Uh, we might hold back on some of it if you actually uh, treat us well and kind of follow the rules, uh, et cetera. But as in, while India will do that, it will continue in parallel to ensure that it works with other U.S. allies and partners to ensure that they can try to shape Chinese behavior and make it think twice before... Uh, It breaks rules, for example, in the area. So I think just to give you one example, even though it was just, um, even as the summit was going on, uh, the Malabar exercise had just been held. Uh, But also, um, India did agree, finally, to upgrade the quadrilateral to a foreign minister level. And so you do see India kind of doing these things in parallel. And of course, Prime Minister Modi had a fairly uh, successful visit uh, to the U.S., uh, including a joint appearance with President Trump in Houston.
0: We've been talking with Dr. Tanvi Madan, who directs the India Project at uh, the Brookings Institution. Thanks so much uh, for your insights on the Xi Jinping Modi summit and on uh, China-India relations. Thanks so much
1: for having me on the podcast, Bonnie.